This podcast is a love letter to every small business owner in Africa that dreams of growing big, every African executive that wants to get ahead, and every leader that wants more impact. I'm Tembi Kumalo, your host and the founder of Brand Builder Africa. We'll talk about everything to do with growing your business by building your brand. Bev Sebastian is one of the most interesting people that I know. And I know a lot of interesting people. Ambitious, driven, energized, and deeply introspective, Bev has made a habit of taking charge of her life from a very early age. In this episode, which we are calling Untamed, she shares with us the pivotal moments of her life and how she ended up as a woman unwilling to be tamed. Enjoy. Bev Sebastian, it is so good to hear from you today. How are you? Great, thanks. And really um, fantastic to be here. Thank you for inviting me. It's great to see you and to chat to you again after so long. Yes. Now, you are one of, I was just saying in my intro, that you're one of the most interesting people that I know. And we're calling this episode Untamed. And I'd like you to share with our listeners how you came to this space. What is your journey to being or becoming an untamed woman? Ah, <laughs> it's an interesting question. And um, it's, quite a, it's quite a long answer. So if you bear with me, but... <laughs> I guess to start with the untamed, I need to go to the beginning, um, Little Beverly. I was, um, I was born in the UK and at the age of about two, my family moved to South Africa and there were three of us. I had two um, brothers, an older, younger, and myself in the middle. And we lived um, as a kid, I lived in quite a religious household with very strict rules. And there was a particular way that girls were expected to be. And, you know, for example, the traditional girls do housework. And I, this was reinforced by the church that we would go to. And the whole idea there was, and it was quite a lot of indoctrination, if you will, mm. about um, when you become, you know, when you're in your late teens, even early twenties, the expectation was you find a husband and then you make babies and you make a lot of them. And to give you an idea, um, there were eight children in our family and my mum. I remember my mum being pregnant a lot <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and I was, um, and I remember actually we used to get cross when she was because we'd be like, Oh, now we have to share, you know, more rooms. And, um, uh, I was the only girl for quite a while. Uh, there were, yeah, I had four brothers at one stage before my, because my sisters are quite a lot younger than me. And um, myself and my mom did, you know, more of the gender typical stuff, but it really, it really bothered me. It always bothered me. And I remember even when I was in Sunday school, just this real feeling of unease. And mm. when they would tell us, you know, because they separated girls and boys and when they, they would tell us a certain way you would have to be. Right. And it just, didn't, it just didn't sit right. And I remember sticking up my hand going, but 
I, you know, why is it that way? And this, just this in, internal voice got louder and louder. Mm. And this also featured um, in the dynamic of education. So it wasn't seen as that important. I did go to school, of course. Um, and in, I went to primary school in Johannesburg and yeah, the schooling system there, well, the particular school I was in, it wasn't for me looking back now, it didn't encourage critical thinking. Um, I went to my first high school because I went to quite a few high schools in quite a few countries. Um, Why was that? We moved a lot. So four high schools in three countries. We moved from when I was about um, 14, 15, we moved to Botswana and then I moved schools and then I moved, uh, there was a boarding school in South Africa on the border of um, South Africa and Botswana. Then we moved to Botswana and then I finished schooling in Namibia before going off to the UK. Was that because of your dad's work? Yes, particularly it was because of his work. And um, it was a big turning point for me, actually, the move to Botswana, because I went from being doing very poorly in school. And when I say poorly, it's, you know, I was an F student, the lowest grade you could go FG. <laughs> I think I got a G once. <laughs> and um, I remember there was like very little expectation from my side that I would do well. And I just kind of thought, okay, well, you know, it's all right. Cause clearly the road is, you know, marriage and, and mm. Yeah. And I wasn't, you know, I wasn't going to be expected to work surely. And so, but this school was a big deal because it was an international school. And all of a sudden I was exposed to all these ideas and all this, all this amazing, um, these books and mm. uh, critical thinking. And I went overnight from being that FG student to straight A's. And it was because oh. of this encouragement. Yeah, and I, I couldn't believe it myself. And it was because of the way that I was being taught. I was being taught not what to think, but how to think, how to be wow. critical, how to question. And I was also going to school all of a sudden with young girls who were saying, actually, you know, they were talking about their ideas of where they wanted to go to university. And they were talking because they were from all over. They were talking about the States, should it be the States or should it be England? And I thought, hang on, I never even thought this was an option. And I started thinking that this is actually something I need to stick with. This is good for me. And even though I moved from school to school, something that became really important for me, even as a teenager, was that I was going to make sure that I did well in this area. And um, when I finished school in, so we, what happened then? I finished school in Namibia and then I went to the UK and I worked in, I've always had a job. So even as a teenager from the age of 14, I was a waitress. And so my first job in the UK was a living job uh, in a pub in the middle of nowhere in the UK. And I was terrible at it. Um, they tried me in several roles. <laughs> I couldn't pull the pints. I wasn't ladylike enough. My, I, I didn't wear my, like, you know, the kitty heels. <laughs> oh, it was gosh. like boots, you know. It was, you know, I had lots of brothers and these things were practical for me. I was on my feet and I wanted flat shoes. Right. But then I didn't, so I didn't even do the dishes well. So I didn't last long in that role. And um, then I did a lot of other jobs. I was a carer, a receptionist. I even delivered mail um, for the post office for one day. I was also bad at that. Um, <laughs> 
And then I traveled and Ireland hopped a bit, um, went to uh, Portugal, the Azores, um, which was incredible for a month. And I traveled a bit of Europe. And then at the end of the, that year, I was with my um, best friend in London and she remains my best friend to this day. And we were at school together in Botswana. And it was her who actually kind of cropped. He, she said she planted the idea of, well, why don't you apply to uni? And again, I thought, well, is this even an option? And I thought, well, yes, it is. And so I applied, not thinking anything. And I got in. And then the next hurdle was, well, I don't have the money. And I had some money saved in pounds. And this was in South Africa and was in 2001. And yeah, the exchange rate was good. Um, mm. Not as good as it is now, but good. And um, I... I thought, well, should I, shouldn't I? And some of my family members actually encouraged me not to. They said, just defer, you don't have the money. What are you going to do when you get there? I was actually very scared, but I thought, stuff it, I'm going. So I got on a plane with half the money for tuition, thinking I'll figure it out. Wow. And I was actually quite scared because I, when I arrived at the university, it all dawned on me. I stood in the line for registration looking so tatty. I mean, I'd been traveling and one little backpack, that's all I had in the whole world. Wow. Um, yeah, and I had no, you know, I had my mate there, you know, from childhood giving me the thumbs up going, you can do this. Wow. And um, yeah, she's she's been amazing and getting to the front of the line and something extraordinary happened. I mean, I always say the universe conspires and the person who registered me, he ended up becoming one of my professors um, in anthropology. And he said, oh, Mrs. Sebastian, um, you had done so well in school. You qualify for a merit award. So half your fees. No way. Yeah, I know. Half your fees we take care of and some of your meals in residence. because." And so I was like, oh, my God. Wow. <laughs> so I did naturally what you would do. I grabbed my bestie and said, we need to go get a, you know, a cheap glass of wine somewhere and celebrate this. <laughs> As one does. <laughs> As a student. But it was, it was the start of um, me starting to really to understand and internalize. I don't have to have it all figured out. I just mm. have to look for the opportunity and I have to leap. And believe, and, I guess. Believe that it will be okay. Absolutely. And just, it's okay not to have all the answers to take that leap. You know, it, it, something will happen. It'll be okay. And it stood me well that because I have, um, getting that first degree was really tough. I went back to the UK twice a year and did care work to pay for my tuition. And it was really hard. And sometimes I wanted to quit, um, but it always somehow worked out. And when I was about well when I graduated I thought okay well again that's it and another good friend of mine um still a good friend she um had become friends we become good friends in uni and she said well you know with respect Bev you know you're really a little bit poor here why don't you just apply for financial aid and I thought but would they give it to me <laughs> <laughs> and um, she said yeah, you, you own a scooter now. I had a little scooter, which I loved. I was always scooting around, but that's about it. You can, you can do this, Bev. There's no one here like giving you pocket money like the rest of us. Mm. And I, I did. I applied thinking there's no ways they're going to give me financial aid, but they did. 
And as soon as I saw it in my bank account and, you know, I was, it was unbelievable because that honors year you needed to focus and I wasn't able to then go back to university, uh, go back to the UK mm. and all the money. So this was really fundamental for me. And yeah. it was, it was profound because I got that um, honors degree and it really solidified some of my critical thinking skills mm. and it was important. And after that stint in education, um, the, one of the first things I did actually was I went back to the UK and I worked and I paid it off because I was so grateful for it. And I knew that there were going to be other students that needed it. And I'm so grateful to this day um, for that gift. Um, and yeah, so after education, um, after, well, after the honours, I... I went back to bumming around a bit, uh, traveled a lot, traveled into South America. I traveled in, um, I um, met a guy then who, who later became my husband um, for a period. And uh, we lived in a tent for a while in Mozambique. And yeah, we just really traveled and enjoyed and then ran out of money. So <laughs> imagine that. <laughs> So there was no money for, you know, cheap wine anymore and uh, food. So we um, we ended up in Joburg and I was really, now I was actually feeling quite lost because I knew that I wanted to do something meaningful with my life in terms of work, but I wasn't sure what that was. Okay. And I'm yeah, pause so, you there because mm -hmm. I have questions. Go for it. First of all, I mean, the life, the kind of family background that you describe, you know, large family, um, boys being favored, a sense of misogyny really um, in there, you know, education not being encouraged. I mean, no one associates this, certainly I don't associate this with a modern day white family. Mm. Um, it just is so, is this, is it unusual in your community or did you find that there were lots of families like this? No, we felt quite different. And actually, even though I have to say, even though, um, uh, girls were seen as less, even my brothers also had it a bit tough in a way. Um, and I think also because of that dynamic, mm. we're also disadvantaged mm. and I think it was um I think it wasn't normal and uh, many times I thought this isn't okay but the church that we went to reinforced mm. it so in that community okay. that particular community it was seen as you know um okay right. and yeah it but I always had that little growing voice that it's not okay and how did that influence your your spiritual life um going forward like as an independent adult later on oh it's such a great question um profoundly actually um i i as soon as i could i really left that church mm. and um i appreciate where people have their beliefs and they and i think there's something to be said for religion and mm. if it has and it has such meaning for people and it's important for many people mm. but for myself it felt like a cage and it felt like certain rules because they came from a particular book yeah. and they were twisted in a certain way 
then I had to be a certain way. And this was my work. This was my wild, only one wild life. And <laughs> I was contorting myself to, you know, I would have it contorted myself to fit. Yeah. 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 And, um, yeah, so I, I'm, I would call myself, um, yeah, I'm a, I guess, atheist slash agnostic, um, but very appreciative of anyone's view and I'm open-minded. Um, and I think there's something to be said for not having organized religion. Sure. So mm. when you were now post your first degree, um, traveling the world, enjoying your youth, basically, was there pressure from your family to settle down, you know, get, get married, settle down, have a baby, do the right, the, the so-called right thing? Um, I guess there was, but I had actually ditched the family for a bit. <laughs> I had put the backpack on them. Unchained yourself. Yeah, actually, I left home when I was 19. Um, I left when I was 19 and I never looked back. And I kept in contact with my siblings. I still have. Um, but I've gone my own way. And um, I've realized over, especially in my 20s, that there's another way to be. And mm -hmm. um, I've managed to um, not go towards that pressure ever. You know, um, what you're saying is so profound because I was listening to Alison Bird recently and she mm. was talking about how people get stuck and mm. and saying you need to realize that the way you've chosen to live your life isn't wrong it's just different from how mm. your family would have wanted or expected and mm. that actually made such an impact on me because understanding that when you make different choices, it's just different. And that doesn't mean it's wrong. <laughs> you exactly. Know? Yeah. Mm. And I also think that for a lot of our audience, um, young people across the African continent with dreams and ideas and fears and uh, Oftentimes what stands in our way is this fear of being disapproved of, fear that, mm -hmm. you know, my family won't agree and then I'll be alone. And that idea of isolation and um, not being part of the tribe is so tremendously upsetting to many people that they, they then don't take risks and they start to mute the parts of themselves or their own voices that aren't in agreement with the status quo. What, what advice would you give someone who is fearful of isolation? It's oh, a big question. As a result, you know, isolation resulting from family disapproval or... or mm that 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 idea of leaving home and leaving mm. the things that are familiar and the safety nets um mm. and i'm asking this because i left home at 22 <laughs> also kind of in a cloud of disapproval mm. and and when i hear 
you know, people at 30, 32, 35 saying, oh, but my parents won't. Mm. I wish I had something to give them. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Um, like a bottle of courage, you know? <laughs> yeah, um, oh, I'll get a bit deeper here, but um, my mum died when she was very young. She was 58 and I was in my mid-30s. And I know that she wanted bigger things for her own life. Mm. And she did have some glimpses of beauty and amazingness and there were there were good things but there was also a lot that was not mm. and I know we spoke about it a few times and what she used to say to me is you know Beverly you're very strong I'm not like strong like you you're very she would call me strong-willed slash stubborn and I would be like oh mom but uh she I know that when she died, I just thought, oh, you know, when we were at her, all her babies at her funeral. And I just mm. remember thinking, but she didn't get it. She didn't get to live. And maybe that's unfair of me to say. And if she was here, she would say differently. But from what we saw, we, you know, and we spoke about it afterwards. We were like, we just wanted our mum to live a good life. And when I actually called time on my own marriage, I remember thinking it was complicated in two ways. The one was, well, this is my life and no one's coming here to save me. And it's so precious and time's running out. Like, you know, when I say time's running out, we don't know how long we're going to be here for. Mm. It's one wild life and I want to do so many things. If I don't go, if I don't, if I'm not going to honor my truth and I'm not going to, even though it's going to maybe be unpopular, Mm. What does that first say to me as myself, as Beverly? And what does it also say to my child, mm. my son? What does it say to him that an unlived life is okay? That contorting yourself because it makes other people comfortable is okay. And frankly, who are those other people? Because they don't, you know, um, watch you the whole time. And, you know, who cares? And they're going through the same struggles themselves. So mm. let's just be all open about it. But I am a fan of, and it's maybe because, uh, and I love the, you know, the untamed aspect here, talking about untamed, is that I love, um, well, I loved, I didn't love it, but I think it was important, profoundly important for me to, when I was a young woman, to walk away and to chart my own path. I do not regret a second of it. If I look at, if I had stopped and did what they had told me to do, I would be a different in a different life right now. And maybe... Like my mom, I would have died young and lived an unlived life. So I think, but that being said, I think also there are people and champions in your corner. So even if you do walk away and you have to walk away and under a cloud of disapproval, there are always some people, um, there's always some glimpses of, um, you know, you go for it and um, it could be a quiet support but I think they are there those voices and you will find yeah. other tribes yeah. as well and yeah, I there think are other families. certainly I think that as you as you go through life you find that you you always have people mm. um you may move away from from one tribe but you always create another or become yeah. part of another or several others in fact um, mm, because you're human and you always gravitate to other humans and other humans will be drawn to you too so you're never mm. really alone no you're never really alone you're right 
Yeah. So you then um, hung around, uh, ran out of money, decided you need to do something more meaningful with your life. And mm -hmm. what was that? So I took an initial job at an IT firm and again, didn't do it very well. I did a lot of jobs that didn't do well, but I started looking around and I um, reached out to some university friends and one in particular had said, well, why don't you try this firm? It's a consulting firm. They do a lot of um, research and um, support for government aid, aid for aid agencies, international NGOs, local NGOs and government. And they do, and I looked them up and they did really cool stuff. And it was, a um, again, a diverse group, an international group that I was um, attracted to. So this person, this connection set up this meeting and I met one of the directors and she called me and said, you know, you sound great. We think you'd be a good fit. Just one snag. We need you to do um, some assessments. And now I had all the graduates they had invited in had done their masters and I hadn't. And you know, it was a bit of a bun fight to get a, a placement as an intern. So first of all, I didn't want to be an intern because then I wasn't going to be paid. So mm -hmm. I was like, I'm not having any of that. And the second was these this test, these tests. So I did. I remember looking around where I was in this IT firm and people were quite bullshy and they were getting, you know, and I thought, okay, well, I'm going to try this bullshy approach. <laughs> so I called her up and I mean, I was really young and just so arrogant, but I mean, I, yeah, I was 26 and I remember saying to her on the phone, well, you've met me, you clearly like me, I can do this job and I knew I could figure it out. Um, I am interviewing elsewhere and, you know, take it or leave it. <laughs> and I don't want to be an intern, you need to pay me. And I thought, <laughs> as it came out of my mouth, I thought, oh my God, I messed this up. Yeah. <laughs> but she thought, she took pause and she took a deep breath and I could hear the irritation as she was exhaling. And in a very stern American accent, she just said, okay, let's, let's try this out. And I never looked back. I just entered this, um, the space, the development space. And it was amazing. I got so much good experience um, working with government, uh, working in um, education, working in um, child trafficking as well, um, doing good work. Mm. And then I, um, one of the assignments was on uh, orphan and vulnerable children. And there was a public health um, consultancy that we needed to do with Tulane University. And then I was like, oh, this public health, this is, this is interesting. And I, I kind of just, ended up staying there and um, for a bit and then moving. I was always after that offered jobs. I was very lucky and um, I was offered jobs in um, NGOs in South Africa. One in particular was uh, orphan and vulnerable children NGO uh, running a what's called a monitoring evaluation and research department um, because of the experience I'd gained at this consultancy. And it was really complex and hard and tough. And I just loved it. I just loved it. I loved figuring it out. Mm. These, mm. these big problems. And it was complicated. And um, after doing that and some other work for a while, um, I moved to Harare. Um, I worked in a consulting firm again. And then um, after that, um, after well, it was about a year, I had my son. And yeah, I was on a plane a bit with the consulting work. I had to go to Washington and leave him behind. I remember when he was little and I, 
I knew that he, you know, there was a few medical issues and I knew that he needed me and I wanted to be closer. And so I took, um, I was off, we did some consulting work for an NGO and I was offered um, position, um, a directorship position for pediatric oncology space. And then after that um, in the palliative care space, but between that, I also did some, well, after that, I also did some consulting work for the World Health Organization and for other NGOs, research, et cetera. So, um, yeah, and then actually while I was pregnant, I finally got my, because, you know, as you do, and I need always need to make my life complicated, I did my master's. So I finished my master's as well during that period, my master's of public health. And that's the last three years. I left Harare after eight years, um, moved back to South Africa. And yeah, these last three years is, have been interesting. I've moved into um, the private healthcare space, a bit of a sidestep. Mm. Um, and that's because of um, personal circumstances. I did something big. I looked around at my life and realized that this doesn't fit anymore. And I guess I took a box of matches to it, <laughs> I like to say, but I put some gasoline on it as well, just to make sure that it was going to fire up. And okay. um, definitely sounding very much waiting to exhale vibes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and I got divorced and it's been hard. And that was about, yeah, I've been divorced a year, separated two years. And I'm I mean, in a very different space now, actually. You and I have both worked in palliative care. And one of the things that certainly I learned immediately was that all change is loss. Yeah. Um, I remember going to my very first uh, consult um, as, a, as a hospice employee and, and one of the staff there giving a talk and saying to the people who'd been bereaved, it was at a school that um, all change is lost, even when the change is good. And as you're yeah. describing your life, I'm thinking, okay, in the last three years, we've had a global pandemic, you've <laughs> changed jobs. So the pandemic in itself is huge change and huge losses, um, mm. changed jobs, more change, more loss. You've gotten divorced, mega change, mega loss. Um, <laughs> moved house I mean this is a lot of change and yeah. therefore a lot of loss mm. how are you processing that it's been it's been difficult but I have a very good therapist and I have oh, I've taken put on my running shoes a lot um I've as an actual looked, road running or yeah, uh, trail running in Cape Town. I've been some trail running. Okay. Um, I have spent a lot of time in quiet and being quiet. Mm -hmm. And it's, yeah, and just really processing writing again mm -hmm. um, and then not writing again. Um, it's been so difficult. I think the first year was the hardest and there were lots of tears and also for my little boy, you know, really trying to hold his pain through this, mm -hmm. but it has also been good in that I had to do this and it was an important step. The processing I think doesn't stop. And I think that there's still much more and many layers, um, but I'm getting there and I'm, I think 
also having those those two friends I spoke about earlier are still so actively in my life. And I've also learned, I used to be someone, and I think it's because of my background, you know, I never ask for help. Mm. And I've had to learn to ask for help and that it's okay and it's not a sign of weakness. It's like, you actually, you know, these are big things and you need to have a community. And, you know, I've had to, I've got an, all of a sudden I've got this community around me yeah. and it's because I've been open to it. And I've been open to saying, yeah, I do need that help. I need that help to pick up my child. I need help to yeah. help with this. I need hope, help here because this is all so much and I'm carrying so much. And, and, you do and it's been wonderful. Yeah. Sorry. Another thing about not asking for help is that you deny other people the opportunity to be of service to you. Yes. And I love helping people myself. I mean, it's been shown through my work and mm -hmm. through some of my um, own charitable um, volunteer work I've done. And I'm a very giving, abundant human in my life. And it's such a gift to be able to do that. Yeah. And it has been um, an important step to take to let people in and to let them help. Yeah. And that has been a very important part of my processing and just being held a little bit um, through this difficult period. Yeah. And so would you say that the journey to being untamed comes at a high cost? It does. It's tough. I think a high cost, I think it comes with a lot of pain and change and it's hard. But the benefits far outweigh it. Um, this morning, actually, I think it's when you when you get divorced. I've noticed a lot of women. I've had a lot of phone calls from friends who've said, who've whispered down the phone or met me for coffee and whispered over the table, "Bev, I'm thinking of ending it," <laughs> and yeah. I'm like, "What?" And it's because I've gone through it, and I often say um, to them, if you're not willing to, you know, if you're not ready to do all these things, to turn your life upside down, if you're not ready to, if you've tried, if you haven't tried everything, if you haven't, um, you know, if you, if you're not ready to watch your kids get devastated, it's all these things, then don't do it. But I always say, if you're there and there is no, and this is it, then do it, walk through the cement because it is walking through cement and it's so complex. However, I think it's, it's it's worth it. If you had to tell me, is it worth it? Every single time it is, yes. Because again, it comes back to that living your own wild, authentic life. Um, it's it's important and it's not easy. And you know, no one said it was going to be easy and it's not supposed to be, I don't think. And what does the future look like for you? The Oof, ideal well. future. <laughs> <laughs> Such a great Give me a picture of your ideal future. Uh, um, I'm moving towards it now. I've just uh, put an offer in on a house. Um, I My ideal future is my friends, family, laughter, more education, books, travel. Um, I think from a career perspective, I'm taking pause there and looking and seeing what will be next. But for now, I'm happy where I am. And I think I need to consolidate and be still for a while. And I think that's important. Mm. But um, and also raising my son, it's just so it goes so fast. He's nine years old and I don't wow. know how he became <laughs> such an awesome human and I don't want to miss out on anything. And I'm really, really enjoying it. 
Um, and before you know it, she's going to be gone. And I, you know, my future is I want to have, you know, I love it. I love having, you know, growing up, I think also with all those brothers and sisters, it's like, <laughs> there was always a joke that we didn't need to have play dates. We were like a crash <laughs> and um, or a hockey team. <laughs> and um, I think having other kids in my life and, um, and I do, and having friends around and laughter and noise and mess is what I'm looking forward to. Mm. And, um, yeah, it's going to be great and it's starting and, um, I'm looking forward to it. I'm actually excited for my future self. <laughs> Sounds lovely. Really, really lovely. So as mm. we round off, there is a girl somewhere in Africa listening to this thinking I want that kind of freedom, strength, clarity. What advice do you have? Let's say three pieces of advice that you would give someone who wants their life to be unchained, untamed, unlimited. Hmm. Such a big, great question. I think... First off is that education is important. And that doesn't always have to be formal education, but if you can be educated and fight for that, I know it's not always possible. Mm. Have, have mentors around you. And if you can't, there's always other ways. There can be other ways. I've always had a mentor. I've always had um, cheerleaders mm. and real cheerleaders, like in the form of um, very important friends and family members, my sister specifically, who just like, you know, want the best for me and mm. really are there in the rough times who will get on a plane and, you know, be there. And I think having those people are important. And I think to question and that when you have that gnawing feeling, that mm, this doesn't feel good, you know, um, it's that gut feeling. Listen to it mm. and sit with it and listen to it some more. And that there are opportunities that present themselves. I'm probably giving you four pieces now. Opportunities. <laughs> when opportunities present, grab them. And you do not have to have it all figured out to have those opportunities come to fruition. Mm. Grab them and you will figure it out. You will figure it out. Um, and the more you grab, the more you will figure it out and the easier it'll become. So that will be kind of my probably five pieces of advice now. Brilliant. <laughs> <Abandoned>, sorry. Brilliant. <laughs> she, she overflows with wisdom. <laughs> it's been a joy to talk to you. And I, I really believe that um, those who listen to this episode will be touched and changed in some way, even if they don't realize it. So thank you for being here. Thank you for being open and honest with your story and being willing to allow others to learn from you. Thank you so much, Tembi. It's been um, a real honor and it's actually, it's felt like therapy. So thank you. <laughs> oh, excellent. See you soon. Thanks. Bye. You've been listening to Brand to Build, a podcast brought to you by Brand Builder Africa. We'll be back here next week with more thoughtfully curated content 
for entrepreneurial leaders who are doing business in Africa. Stay, subscribe, and let us know what you think or what you'd like to hear about next. To learn more, visit our website at www.brandtobuild.co or email askus at brandtobuild.co.